So perhaps we should say good morning and welcome to our second of our seven-part session on what it means to be human. And for those of you who weren't here last time, my name is Edwina Maxim, and I teach here at Oakcrest. This is my 30th year with the school, and I'm very happy to be here. I've seen generations of young women graduate and go on to be uh, wonderful young women accomplishing great things in the world. So um, I hope to share with you some of what we learn and teach here at Oakcrest today. Uh, this, these classes are about being human, which is probably one of the most important things that we need to know because who am I? What, what am I? What am I made for? What's my destiny? And then the big question is, if I know who and what I am, how should I live? Okay, remember from the first class, Lord Jonathan Sachs, the Orthodox Jewish rabbi who was the chief rabbi of the UK uh, from 91 to 2000, I believe, um, having said that, that no matter what or how human culture, technology, knowledge, etc., develops, mankind will always ask the same questions that we've asked from the very beginning. And if you go back and look at the ancient philosophers, I teach philosophy to the seniors here, so if you go back and look at the ancient philosophers, all of them had the notion that we are here for a purpose. We are here for a reason. Well, actually, I said all of them. Some of them did not. Some were materialists. But generally speaking, the thrust of human inquiry is, who am I? We've been called meaning-seeking animals, the meaning-seeking animal. Okay, Who am I? What am I? What's the meaning of my life? And if it has a meaning, then how should I live my life? Because if my meaning has a purpose, my action needs to get me to that purpose, right? So if we're beloved children of God, made in his likeness and image, who are to live forever with him in heaven, that means I need to figure out, I need to know how to get there. And how to get there means I need to know how to direct my own activities, my choices. How to deal with the people and things around me so that I live in such a way that I am ready to face the Lord. You know, you want, want to make your peace to meet your maker. Um, people keep saying at the end of your life, well, in a sense, we're making our peace all along the way. Because in knowing and understanding and figuring out who and what we are and why we're here, okay, we prepare ourselves by the choices we make, by the way we direct our lives, for what comes afterwards. Okay? And we have the great gift of revelation in which God tells us what we're destined for. right? And he tells us how to live, too. Um, but that, too, is a beautiful thing, that humanity has discovered what's called the natural law. The natural law simply being the way we've been created. So we can recognize, um, in addition to being told by God, we can recognize, we can know ourselves, who and what we are, and figure out what our destiny is, and then how to get there. Um, last class, we saw that we are a material, bodily, living creature. Uh, we're called rational animals. That's the philosophical definition, at least one of them, of what a human being is. Um, we're rational animals, but we have an organic body, like the other animals that functions in many of the same ways. Um, we're living. We're organic. We're not a rock. We don't just exist in the world, although sometimes we can be accused of being couch potatoes. Nevertheless, those are living things, too. Okay. Uh, we unfold through change. Some of that change is not under our control. It's just the way our biological dynamism develops and um, 
help and accidents along the way. Okay. But then as rational living creatures, we're called to deal with that, to cope with that in a way that makes something of it. And that's the human difference. Okay. That's one of the signs of irrationality. That no matter what occurs, we can use that occurrence either for our benefit or not. And it's a choice that we make, right? Um, we exist in a place. We have a geographical location in the world, but we're not tied to it like a plant. Plants can't move around. So they can't go somewhere else if there's uh, a drought or if there's, there aren't enough nutrients in the soil for them to live on, right? But we can. We can move around our place. We have an environment. That is, we're in contact, sensory um, contact, with the things around us. And we have a world. We have a conscious awareness of what's around us. And we interact with it purposefully. Okay? Um, so again, to review, I think this is a beautiful quote from St. Irenaeus of Lyon, a very early church father. He says that the glory of God is man fully alive, and the life of man is the vision of God. If the revelation of God through creation already brings life to living things on earth, in other words, we can see the Creator and recognize His action in the world, um, how much more will the manifestation of the Father by the Word, okay, that is Jesus revealing the Father and His plan to us, bring life to those who seek God? So basically, imagine what we are made for in life beyond. But I think one of the interesting things about this quote is that the glory of God is man fully alive. What does that mean? It means that if we're conscious of who and what we are, and we make the most of it, we develop our best potentials, then we will be giving glory to God. And we do that intentionally, of course, or not. But we can do it intentionally. And that's when we are fully alive. We are living not just a biological organic life, not just the philosophical life of reason, but we are living the very supernatural life of God. He tells us that he has given us his life through grace, right? Um, so I like to share this quote with my students as well because I think it motivates them to, again, make the most of their humanity, of their personal individual selves. So they can be who God made them to be and do in the world the wonderful things over the course of their lives that God is asking them to do. And that will bring them happiness. I think that's the interesting thing too. It's not that we labor under the injunctions of a creator who will punish us if we're bad. If we're bad, what we're doing is we're contravening the way we're made as human beings. And therefore, we're harming ourselves. Next time, we'll talk about freedom, free will. This time, we're going to talk about rationality and the human difference. What does it mean to be human? So again, just to review what we saw last time, we are bodily creatures, part of the material universe, a living organism with specific capacities. We are rational creatures. Reason, sense, perception is the basis for all of our knowledge. Uh, reason from things unseen, from things seen rather to their unseen causes, and to choose freely rather than acting out of necessity or coercion. Now what does that mean? Can someone coerce me to do something? Yes. Somebody can physically coerce me to do something, even if it's something that I don't want to do, correct? But therein lies the human difference. I still choose. Even if I'm being physically coerced to do something that I don't want to do, right? somebody can take my hand and um, put it in 
the showcase of beautiful, valuable rings and force me to take one of those rings, right? Am I stealing? No, not necessarily. Maybe yes and maybe no. And that's the interesting thing. If I'm thinking, oh, I always wanted an emerald ring, and there's one. I can get it now and have it, right? Um, and plead, no, it was forced. But th that's, again, that shows the specifically human difference, that I have reason and free will. I know what I'm doing, and I choose to do what I'm doing. So even if I'm being coerced, my hand is being forced to go in there and pick up that emerald ring, interiorly, I may be saying, I don't want to do this. I'm being forced. It will happen because I can't get away from the person forcing me, right? But it is not what I want to do. And if I can, I will return the ring uh, afterwards, should I be able to get it from my captor. Okay. Um, on the other hand, I can say, well, let's go back. I think I just mixed the, the, the example. But I can say, oh, I always wanted an emerald ring, so this is now mine, right? Or I can say, no. I don't want to steal something that's not mine. Therefore, I am not stealing. I'm not morally responsible for theft, even though I was forced, my body was forced to do this, right? Um, so we really do have free choice always. There is within us a core of intimacy that no one and nothing can get into. That's the place where I dwell, and it's the place where only God and I can be. Okay. Um, and we're, so we're relational persons. That's the other important thing to think about, is that we don't exist alone by ourselves. We're not independent, autonomous atoms rolling around the world, but rather we come into the world very connected to others, to our parents. Right? We're dependent for a long time on them for our growth and development. Right? Um, and throughout our lives, we have sets of relationships of different sorts, whether at work, at home, socially, um, in which we flourish and which we need to flourish. You remember last time we, we looked at the quote from Ruth Whitman that it's really necessary for human beings to have human connections, social connections. We don't thrive without them. And if we don't have them, the damage to our being, even to our health, is equal to um, overeating, and obesity. Okay, it, it does more damage to our bodies than smoking or obesity, to our mental health, etc. Okay. Then we also looked at, sorry, we looked at two things, the human soul giving the body its specific form of unity, order, and activity. And if you look at the human body, it is very apt for a human soul. A human soul, a human mind, needs to have biological capacity to do the things in the world that the mind can know and do. Okay. And we have some unique things, starting with our hands. <coughs> our, we have fully opposable thumbs, so in other words, we can touch our finger, each one of our fingers with our thumb and our knuckles and etc. No other animal has that. And that's very important because it allows us to do the very fine work, it allows us to do the gross motor work, to invent and to create things that animals cannot create or use. That's why the human hand has been called the tool of tools. It goes far beyond what any animal can do. And some animals do use tools, as we'll see in another slide, right? Um, we have a very wide vocal range. 
and a diverse way of expressing our emotions. Again, beyond what animals are capable of doing. Animals can imitate, they have a range of sounds and a range of things that they can signify with those sounds. But we can invent new words for new things that we invent. We can describe in multiple ways the things that we do and know, um, which animals cannot do. And with our body language, animals too have body language, right? You see a dog, it's showing its teeth, you're not going to go near it, right? But human beings have a much broader range of body language. We can show love and affection, kindness with a glance, with a touch, with a turn of the head, with many other bodily gestures that we can do. Uh, we can also be little alpha queen bees and you know the suspicious look out the side of the eye at the <laughs> non persona non grata, right? In any case, we can express meaning uh, in ways that animals cannot. We stand on our two feet and we walk on our two feet, and that really is a, a huge advantage. Plato himself recognizes this in one of his dialogues uh, when he talks about the creation of the world and the creation of the human being. And he says the head is put at the top of the body and the body stands upright so that precisely we can look up, down, and around the world and understand, know, see, and deal with more than an animal that walks on all fours, etc., or even an animal that partially walks on two legs. And if you look, again, if you look at um, apes and chimpanzees, they can be pretty digitally dexterous, but they don't have the dexterity that we have with their appendages. We have a larger cranial capacity compared to our bodies than many other animals do, and that seems to be an advantage for us. Two things, we have a brain that can work and function abstractly, but we have a brain that can also regenerate its neurons, and it does, um, and it stores them for future use in case something happens. And if we have, science has shown, an insult to the brain, an injury, or what have you, like stroke or accident, the brain goes into high drive in generating new neurons so that it can repair itself. And for the longest time, up until the middle of the 20th century, it was thought that brain cells, when they died, did not regenerate in the adult brain, but they actually do. So we have a larger cranial capacity compared to body mass than other uh, creatures, many other creatures. And we need much more in terms of calories to keep our brains going. We use about 20% of our caloric intake every day just to fuel our brains, okay? which is why cooked food was such an important thing in the development and the evolution of the human being, okay, the human species. Um, once we could break down the nutrients and make them more friendly to the ways our body absorbs them, um, the easier it was for our brain to develop and allow us, allow the soul to use it to do what we characteristically can do. Otherwise, somebody's done the calculations and discovered that it would take us, if we ate raw food, about nine hours of chewing a day just to fuel the kind of brains we have. Well, what would we do with, the, you know, with the, the capacity that that would generate? Anyway, again, we looked at uh, body and souls as co-principles of one substance. We are not just a body, and we're not just a soul. We're a composite. And the body is not a throwaway envelope for the soul, as some philosophies and even religions have thought and taught. 
Plato, for example, thought that the soul dropped from the world of forms, the world of ideas, into matter by some kind of defect. So then our material bodies are kind of something that is a jail, a prison for our souls. And the whole life of man is to free ourselves from that prison so that we can, our spirit can be free to go back and exist in the world of forms, in the world of ideas where truth dwells, right? Um, and that is not the case. We are one unit because our soul is the life principle of our body. That's how soul has been defined since classical times. Okay, rationality, the human difference and the difference it makes. Our intellect is capable of knowing anything and everything that's out there that we're capable of knowing. We're limited, of course, and we will never know everything, right? But if you think about it, our intelligence wants to know everything there is to know. So it has this almost infinite desire to be satisfied with knowledge. And what do we want knowledge of? We want knowledge of truth, right? Nobody wants to be told lies, right? We don't want falsehood. We don't want erroneous information. We don't want to be misdirected by Miss Google on our GPS maps um, so that we don't get to our destination, right? We want to know the truth, and we want to know the truth about everything. Um, we can know things not only in relation to our immediate physical needs. So again, we're not like animals that food, okay, shelter from the cold or whatever. But we think beyond that. We plan for the future, and we can dip into the past and bring from the past knowledge that we've gained and use it for future activity. We can know concepts, not only images, and we'll take a look at that in another slide. And we have self-reflection, which apparently no other animal does. And this is the diff one of the markers of the difference between human beings and other animals. The uh, spiritual soul that is our life principle um, and those animals that do not have a spiritual soul. We learn from our mistakes not by trial and error, but by thinking about them. We can think through complex ranges of thought in order to make decisions or invent something new or find new ways of solving problems and relating to the world around us. Uh, we can understand cause and effect. Cause and effect is one of the basic um, understandings that we need in order to do anything in the world, to invent the plow, to invent the wheel, to invent the computer. We need to know why this happens, and not, not only why this particular individual thing happens, what caused this, but what came before this, and what can I use of the, what can I draw on from those other causes to then make something new, do something new or different now or in the future. Is that clear? Does anybody have a question so far? No questions, okay. Um, and then we're never done learning and we choose freely. Now we've looked a little bit at free choice already, right? We think abstractly. Uh, so human knowledge begins in the senses and the work of the imagination. We're going to look in another slide to see how that happens. We have the capacity to separate out and consider different aspects of the things we encounter apart from the specific individual things themselves. So it's not like dolphin meets girl. Okay. The dolphin knows that this is another living human being. Okay. And it wants to relate to that human being. Dolphins are apparently highly intelligent animals. Okay. Um, 
As a matter of fact, I've heard that uh, if, if a woman is expecting a child and, and she goes swimming with dolphins, they, they ask before you get in the water if you are expecting a child, because the dolphins will encircle that woman and kind of protect her and, and shelter her and guide her. They've been known to guide ships and individuals to sh safety after shipwreck or swimmers. They, they know if somebody's in distress. And they do the same for each other. Okay. But they have a range of knowledge and adaptation beyond which they cannot go. We can. We can make it good for dolphins. They can only make it good for us and themselves to a certain degree. So um, clearly, they don't think beyond the immediate of, oh, this is a living being. They have some sense of, it's something like me. They perceive, perhaps by smell or whatever, uh, or sound, since they're highly um, responsive to sound, that this person has certain, or this being has certain needs, and it can respond to it, and so it does in certain ways. But that's all patterned behavior. They really don't choose to do that. You don't see a dolphin saying to its offspring, no, I don't think I want to play with you today. Why don't you go play by yourself? I did see in uh, the aquarium in Chicago a while back something very interesting. There's a mother dolphin with a baby dolphin. And mother was, quote unquote, teaching baby to be a dolphin. <laughs> okay. It was very interesting because you can see that you know we have this same sort of um, instinctual behavior, but then our behavior is, is, goes much beyond that. And the mother dolphin was swimming, and the baby dolphin would go away and play, and, but then come back and swim either above or below the mommy dolphin. And he would touch her periodically, just kind of like, you're still there? You're still there? Okay. So animals do have a sensory awareness. Now you have a level of knowledge, but not like ours. Um, Self-reflection, abstract thought are signs of the immateriality of the act of thinking. So we are not just biological organisms. And they also indicate that our human soul is spiritual. Because to be able to think abstractly, to be able to figure out cause and effect, not just on a trial and error basis, means that we have a capacity that is not tied to our body, our instincts, but transcends that. And then where does that capacity come from? Where does it dwell? Where does it inhere? It must be the activity the signal, the sign of the existence of something not material that's a constituent component of what it means to be human. And that's what we call the spiritual soul. And since it's spiritual, it's immaterial, and it can never die. Which is why once created, once, once a human being enters existence by the will of God through conception, the soul will live forever. That is a human person in its tiniest state, right? So here we see animal tool use. And they're actually, this is the Egyptian vulture. It uses a stone to crack an egg open. That's pretty sophisticated, don't we think? And there's a chimp digging for grubs or something. I don't know what. Um, and he seems to be very intent on getting lunch. Um, and I just found the other day the dolphin with a sponge on its nose. Apparently, the bottlenose dolphin puts a sponge on its nose to go fishing with. And it can locate and scrape up, I guess, little fishes more easily with the sponge. And who knew? 
But again, this is, this I think is interesting too in terms of, I remember who it was who said that we use, oh, maybe it was Einstein, that we use only about 5 to 10% of our intellectual capacity. If we think about how much and how often we act like dolphins, I, you know, we just go with the flow with things that, you know, we pick up, we know, we understand, and, and, and just go on, as opposed to actually thinking and reflecting. And I think this is important in helping young people grow and grow up, is to help them realize and to learn to love and enjoy using their intellect. So helping them study, you know, figure things out from the, their youngest existence, okay, we can ask them to explain the reasons for their behavior. Now, why did you do that? And it can be a good thing or it can be not so good thing, like, you know, drawing on the wall or something like that. But they have reasons and helping them begin to reason stimulates their minds so that they can become fully human uh, more adequately. Right? And that's part of what mentoring into life is for. Um, if we think about the length of time it takes a human being to mature, what's going on during that time? Well, of course, biological growth, right? But in the best of all possible worlds, what are we doing for our children? We're teaching, we're mentoring them into being human, right? And the, the most characteristic non-material activity of a human being, you might say, is to love. We want relationship. We're made for relationship. We're made for love. We're very unhappy if we're alone, if we don't have friends, if, we're, if we feel solitary. As a matter of fact, uh, in the last class, you remember this experiment was done that we talked about um, where college students were put in a room and asked uh, to sit there just with their own thoughts. The room was empty, bare, nothing on the walls, etc. And they had a choice. They could sit there for a length of time alone with their thoughts, or give themselves mild electric shocks. And the majority of people <laughs> chose to give themselves mild electric shocks, which is kind of interesting when you think of the intellectual capacity we have. And if we use it ourselves and we educate our children to do so, what a rich interior life we can have. And how exposure to um, sociability, to learning to the arts, etc., to even physical activity, gymnastics, sports, you think about it. The rich interior life to prayer. Even the ancients, again, you know, from earliest times on, noted that the human being had a spark of the divine reason. And the most characteristic life for the human being was to live in contact with the divine through contemplation. So we need quiet, and that, I think that too is important in um, helping our young people grow, grow up, right? Is to learn to be quiet and to enjoy being quiet, to think and to pray. Because that will, of course, develop us fully if we think back to St. Irenaeus's quote, right? Now, the difference between animal tools and human tools. This is the city of Jericho, which is the oldest consistently inhabited city on the planet, as far as we know. And that tower is 70 feet, down, 70 feet tall, and I, I don't remember how many strata down from uh, the top of the excavation, but it is way down there. And to think that people 
way back in that time had that technology is pretty amazing as we saw last time from 22,000 30,000 years ago we have art and architecture that are very impressive when we think of the technological development of the time in the middle we have uh, one of Michelangelo's drawings and that's going to be important for us when we look at the next slide um, all of scientific research that we're capable of carrying out and then we actually have constructed the capacity for virtual reality so the practical application of theoretical knowledge over time, again, um, is an indication that we have a mind capable of doing more than simply living at the sense imaginative level in the world. And then we should use it, appreciate it. Uh, this, I think, is fascinating. This is the evolution of the Swiss Army knife. Okay. And why are we looking at this? We're looking at this because it's a symbol of culture. We can treat it as a symbol of culture. What is culture? Cu culture is the sum of knowledge um, that is possessed by one generation and passed on to the next. So it's like we, we learn, we know, we grow, and we pass on what we have learned and done to the coming generation. And then each generation tries to build and improve upon what has come before, and this in all the areas of life, whether it's uh, technology, lifestyles, the arts, the sciences, or the humanities. We keep writing novels, right, and, and try to reflect and reflect upon our own uh, life, for example, in those works of fiction. This is the original Swiss Army knife, 1890. Um, the one on the right is the latest iteration. That's what's standard issue for Swiss Army, <laughs> okay, for men in the Swiss Army. Uh, these are other iterations along the way. And this is not what you give to a soldier, but it is Victorinox uh, ha has now makes the Swiss Army knife. Um, it used to be done by another company. Um, and this is called the Swiss Army Champ. It has everything in it you could possibly desire to live your life with, almost. Um, <laughs> at least in the wild. It's got uh, a nail file, scissors, pliers, a screwdriver, a bottle opener, different kinds of blades, um, scissors, and that's not the most sophisticated. They have one called the giant, which actually has 33 components of what it can do. Anyway, but that shows you what the human mind can do, and that demonstrates that we are definitely different, a different kind of creature. Our specific differences are rationality. Aristotle in his Metaphysics opens that book with all men by nature have the desire to know. And I think we've seen that, that that is true. We want to know everything that there is to know. Why? Not only for use, but also for appreciation. Otherwise, why would we stand there on a starry night enjoying the view, right? Um, Sir Isaac Newton, just before his death, said, I do not know what I may appear to the world. And he had done plenty in terms of science, right? But to myself, I seem to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself in now and then finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than ordinary, while the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. Again, the, the universal capacity of the intelligence and our desire to know and to use it. Right? Okay. Now, what is abstract thought? What do we mean by that? If we go back a couple of slides to 
Michelangelo's drawing, one of his drawings for a flying machine, okay? That never got in invented, or it never got made in his time. Why not? Because people had not yet figured out the necessary engineering knowledge to make a flying machine. But Michelangelo already had the concept of a physical object that could fly. Okay. What does that mean? That means that we can read reality in a way that other creatures cannot. And this is the difference between sense and imaginative knowledge, knowledge like the animals have in learning from experience by trial and error, and the kind of knowledge a human being has to make a Swiss Army knife with 33 capacities <laughs> built into it, as opposed to one blade, right? Um, when we come in contact with something, what is it that we know? What we actually know is the inner structure of that thing. And we recognize it. We can't necessarily, we don't know it in itself. Only God knows that because he made cats and dogs and birds and trees and fish and everything else that's in the world, right? But we do know what a cat is, right? We recognize it in different cats, different felines from lion to itty bitty kitten born yesterday, right? Um, what is our mind doing? Well, first of all, our senses take in the features of the cat. So it's soft and fluffy. It's about one pound. It's my cat. It's 2.30 in the afternoon. Where is it? My house. It's sitting. What's its condition? How is it feeling? It's feeling playful. It's got its paw lifted. It's activity. It's passivity. What is being done to it? It's being looked at by me. I'm not limited to knowing just this. I also know that this is something that exists independently of me in the world, which animals also recognize, but I recognize it as a class of things that I can relate to in one way or another, depending on what kind of individual of the, the class that it is. So once I know a few cats, I know something about cat nests. I know something about all cats, okay? And this is what we mean by abstraction. We're able to read the inner structure of reality with our minds, and that's what allows us to do things like invent the latest iteration of the Swiss Army knife with its 33 capacities, or send a rocket to the moon, or whatever else we may be doing. Okay. The same thing is true if we think about Handel's Messiah. What is Handel's Messiah? Now there you have a concept. What is it really? Is it the chorus singing the Messiah? Is it the original inspiration in Handel's mind, whatever that was? Don't you wonder what it's like to conceive of a new work of music? Since I'm not a composer, I always wonder, how do you how do, you do that? You know, what happens in your mind when you know that? Um, is it the score, the written notes that the composer originally put down on paper? Is it a CD? or other album, an MP3 version? What is Handel's Messiah? And yet we know it, right? We know what we're talking about when we talk about it. Um, and we know that it can have different manifestations. We talk about it in different ways. So cognition, then, knowledge, is a personal act. It can only be done by a person, an I, somebody who has an individual identity that they can recognize. 
which is why animals don't think. We know that they don't think. They don't think this way. They don't carry out the activities that we carry out. Um, and why are we going here? We're going here for two reasons, to understand what it is to be a human person and what it is to be free. Because if we were not rational, we would not be able to be free. We couldn't choose freely. We would be directed by instinct. And if we had an intellect, if we were rational and could know and understand, but couldn't choose, we would be eternally frustrated. Imagine being able to know a ton of things and not being able to do anything about it, other than follow your instincts. It would be extremely frustrating, right? Um, so to know there's a relationship between us and reality. I am I, I know that I, I am I, and I know an object. I know that I know something, which shows us contrary to some recent um, philosophies and some ancient philosophies as well, that what we actually know when we know is that we know the truth. And we, our knowledge is objective. It's not subjective. Okay? It's not merely my perspective or my take on things. Because things are what they are. We would never be able to do science if knowledge were not objective. Because things would only be and act the way I perceive them or something. And that's clearly contradictory to the way the world really works. Um, intellectual knowledge, this recognizing the interior structure of reality, is something that is beyond what pure senses and instincts can do. Knowledge is an immaterial act. If you know a triangle, you know triangularity. If you know a pyramid, you know triangularity. But does triangularity exist any place by itself? No. It's a concept in the mind. And that's what we mean when we say we know the inner structure of reality. A triangle is a musical instrument with three sides. That's the definition of triangle or triangularity. It's a figure with three sides. But it can be a prism. It can be a pyramid. It can be a musical instrument. It can be anything that has three sides and three angles. Okay. And that's the way we know. Other beings don't know that way. That's intellectual knowledge. It's an immaterial act. It's imminent. That is, it stays within me. I know it, I learn it, and it is mine as a possession of my person. It's also an intentional act. I am paying attention to something in order to gain knowledge, to gain a concept. And then I can, by intention, do something else with that knowledge that goes beyond um, simply dealing with it on a sense or instinctual level. So the object of the act of knowing, then, is truth in all things and in all situations. Are there any questions? No? You sure? OK. And what we do is we ask the why question. What we really want to know is the causes of everything. Um, and not just efficient causes, as we said before, not just why does this particular thing happen here and now, but what is the purpose of it all? It's that thrust of what is the purpose of it all that is a sign of our rationality and the fact that we have something about us that is not material, that transcends matter, and that will last forever since it's been once put into existence by God. That's our spiritual soul, right? Um, so rationality then has, <laughs> I love this picture, um, <laughs> rationality has implications for human dignity. Because since we are persons, we are an I, 
We're not just one of a species. We need to deal with each other differently than if we were just one more thing of a species that existed for the sake of the species. Um, we eat chickens, right? We take care of chickens so we can eat them, so we can eat the eggs, so we can, maybe we just like chickens and have them in our yard because we, there are a huge number of varieties, because they're pretty. But we don't treat chickens as we treat human beings. Why? Because they're not rational, they're not in intellectual, they're not rational, and free. Free means self-determining. So if I'm an I, if I'm rational, if I have a personal identity, then my, that's the source of my rights. And my first right is my right to life. And therefore, I have the right, if you will, to direct my own life that should not be interfered with unduly, unless I'm doing something bad and wrong that's harmed to me or somebody else, right? By another person. I cannot, in other words, I cannot be used. A person cannot be used for some other purpose. So you think slavery, you think even, um, why do we have informed consent in medical experiments and tests? Because we are persons, because we're rational, free. And we, though we're made for relation, relationality, we're made for relationship, we're made for relationships of love, love recognizes the good of the other and will not interfere with it. On the contrary, it will promote the good of the other for the sake of that other, who is another like me, independent and free, given life and given the power to direct their own lives by choice.